So I'm driving Chris down to soccer practice about 4.30, running him down to Oak Harbor. I said, how you doing, Chris? And Chris said, I'm fine. But it was kind of, there's something in his voice. And I said, no, really, what, what, what's going on? I said, what's been on your mind lately? And he goes, oh, something. I said, well, that's, that's good news. <laughs> what, what's been on your mind? He said, I, I'm, I'm just thinking about something Pastor Jake said last night about whether or not I'm ashamed of speaking the name of Jesus in public. Thank you, Jake. Our kids need to be thinking through this stuff. We had this great conversation about processing. You know, what is it that God is teaching us? What is it that God is saying to us? Sometimes I think as adults we can forget to process or, or maybe we think, you know what, I've been processing my whole life. The processor's barely working. I'm glad I can get up in the morning. So process schmasses. But no, we are, we are here tonight to process the word of God. And so as Jesus teaches you and shows you things as he's showing me these things in the scriptures, I, I just pray that we will think it through, kind of like Chris in the car. Just, I mean, he was really mulling this stuff over. This really got under his skin. And I said, Chris, that's exactly where you want to be. So same for us tonight. We want to be processing and mulling these things over. Joshua, Yehoshua, chapter one, verse one. Let's begin right at the start one more time. I know we opened it up Sunday. Let's get a running start. It came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Yehoshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel, every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun, will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. For you shall give this people possession of the land, which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, to the Republicans or the Democrats, so that you, I'm sorry, I, I, couldn't, I can't resist that. It's hilarious to me. To the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Part one of the book of Joshua, as we began on Sunday, is passage. Remember, we said there were four parts, and we're now into the first part, passage, which covers the first four chapters. That is their passage into the promised land. They're entering into the promise. What's marvelous about this book is it doesn't begin with Joshua, Yehoshua. It begins with God's spoken word. The whole thing launches with what you could call a call to arms issued by the Lord, where he repeats three times 
Be strong and courageous, verse six. Be strong and very courageous, verse seven. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous, verse nine. Now we said on Sunday, he repeats it three times. I don't know if that was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit getting the point across. But in the repeating of be strong and courageous, I want you to think for just a moment, what does that tell us? Why does God repeat it three times to Yehoshua, to Joshua, his servant? Does that that tell us that Joshua was afraid and cowardly, so God said be strong and courageous? Hardly, hardly. This is the same Joshua who led the battle, the charge against the Amalekites in the valley. Same Joshua who had that military training and it was repeated to him by Moses again and again all the way across, not just you know an 11 day journey, but across 38 years that story would be repeated. He had been trained up, he's a fighting man. What does it tell us that God says again and again, be strong and courageous? If the Lord tonight is saying to you, and I believe he is, be strong and courageous, what does that tell you I'll tell you what, it tells us that Joshua had a choice. That he could be strong and courageous. He could choose to embrace that charge. To say, yes, Lord, I will be strong. Yes, Lord, I will be courageous. It tells us that strength and courage involved a decision on the part of Joshua. Either to be strong and courageous or not. Tells us he could agree with and conform to, listen to this, to the word of God. And it is the same with you and me. We can agree with and conform to the word of God by an act of human will. Well, not perfectly, but is that your heart's desire? Lord, this is your word, and I wanna conform to your word, and I am deciding this day that I will conform to whatever you ask me to, to conform to. And if I trip, I'm gonna get up again and truly by an act of sheer human will, I'm gonna continue to be strong and courageous. I'm not gonna let fear overcome. I'm not gonna let worry or anxiety rule my life. I am going to choose the strength and the courage that you, Lord, have called me to. Now, that may not seem like a difficult thing, except that we have been fed such a load of disheartening deception in this culture. And I think you'll know what I'm talking about. Like unreasoning animals, we just are what we are. And we can't help ourselves. We have no choice but to act instinctively rather than by reason. And what that means is weakness and fear and sin. I can't help myself. It's the way I am. It's genetic. I was born this way. And we hear this over and over and over and over in our culture such that we have kids growing up thinking, I have no choice, I just have to embrace whatever it is that I feel, whatever it is that I think I was born into, and if it's sin, it's sin, oh well, I can't help it. And to that and to this culture, the Lord says, be strong and courageous. To followers of Jesus, you and me, he says, choose to be strong and courageous. Don't choose to be what your fathers were if your fathers were sinful. Don't choose to repeat generation after generation the fallenness and the weakness of humanity. No, choose 
to be strong. Choose to be courageous. Let me put it to you this way. First Peter, or Second Peter. If you wanna flip over there, in fact, do that real quickly. Second Peter. Hebrews, James, first and second Peter. In the New Testament, where Peter begins his letter. So I'll let you get there, but I'm just gonna start reading. He begins his letter, 2 Peter chapter one, says Simon Peter, a bond servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, he had that choice. To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I love that, Peter calls Jesus God. He says, grace and peace be multiplied you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now listen carefully, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So no question where goodness and virtue and excellence comes from, it's it's from him, but he's called us to it. He says, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence, now that sounds like you got a choice. Applying all diligence sounds like something you can do. In your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. He's saying, add this on. Add into your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, here we get up to the apex, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, unconditional love. That all reads very clearly like something you and I can choose to do. And the Bible is rife with these kinds of calls to arms by the Lord. Be strong. Be courageous. He'll say in other places, be holy because I am holy. God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. The first step in taking a hold of the promise as the children of Israel about to come into the promised land begin taking hold of the promise of God. First step, Joshua, you gotta decide to take hold of it. You gotta decide you're gonna do this. And to do it, you're gonna have to be strong and courageous. It's not gonna be easy. I've given it to you, but you're gonna need to fight. So be strong and courageous. Take hold of, well, again, your namesake, Yehoshua, salvation of Yahweh. Take hold of it. Decide to take hold of it. Now that's at the start. But for the disheartened, discouraged, dejected Christian, step two, once I've decided to take hold of the promises, I've decided to be strong and courageous, now I gotta determine to hear and obey the word of God. I've decided to follow you, Jesus, now what? Now I'm gonna obey. And the word of God begins, be strong and courageous, at least to Joshua. This is his first out. He's called on to take hold. First Timothy chapter six, verse 12. Paul says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And you may recall on Sunday, I talked about the fact that a lot of Christians are still out in the wilderness. 
still stuck in Romans 7, wretched man, wretched woman that I am, rather than there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, living by the spirit of life in Christ. Wilderness, promised land. Where are you gonna live? Decide and then determine to take hold of the promise. Hebrews chapter six, verse 18 tells us by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, and those two things are his word and himself. He says, in these two things we have taken refuge. He says, have strong encouragement. Sounds like be strong and courageous to take hold of the hope set before us. Sometimes I just need to be reminded as a follower of Jesus Christ to take hold of the promise, not to get depressed or bummed out or discouraged by all the things going on in the culture around us, but to say, hey, we already have the promise. We're in the promised land, so let's fight for the promise. And I truly believe if we, have, if we had had that attitude over the last three or four decades, our country would not be in the place that it's in. If the church had been taking hold of the promise positively, optimistically going forward with the truth of God's word, obeying him and standing on these principles and on this promise, well, I think culture would be far the better for it. So the word to God at the out here is, Joshua, be strong and courageous. And Joshua's gonna choose to do that, verse 10. Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people. Officers, that word is interesting, it's shotrim. The shotrim of the people. Now, in this case, the Hebrew word shotrim means like officers as in those who are in charge and heads of fifties and hundreds and thousands. So he tells the officers to go among them. It's interesting today that the word shotrim, the modern Hebrew uses the same word for civilian police officers. So the officers of the people. He doesn't tell them to go out and give them tickets. He says in verse 11, pass through the midst of the camp. Command the people saying, Prepare provisions for yourself for within three days you are to cross this Jordan. Now he's repeating what God had said to him. He's now owning the very word of God. Cross this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess it. Now remember from Sunday again, I just wanna make sure we've got this going in that Joshua is a fighter, that he's fully equipped, faithful, not fearful. He's filled with the Holy Spirit and he is God's front runner in what we're calling Israel's rite of passage. Our study through Yehoshua, we're calling the rite of passage. Remember also that Joshua is that historical figure. This truly took place. We truly have an historical account and a military account of the children of Israel taking the land. But Joshua is also the prophetical picture of Yehoshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Christ. So here he commands his officers, the Shotrim, to tell the people, get ready, prepare to go take the promise. And that is exactly what Jesus has done with his church, what he's done with you and with me as, as officers. In fact, he does that with officers of his church. I think we're gonna change the name Shepherd. I think for the next season, we're gonna be called the Shotrim. right? Because Ephesians chapter four, verses 11 and 13, he gave some apostles and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the service to the building up of the body of Christ. So there are officers even in the church today, and the call to us is to build each other up. Build up our most holy faith, Jude writes. 
But perhaps you notice the timetable there in verse 11. This is all to happen within three days. Three days. Three days is a big deal in the Bible. I think you know why. For within three days, we're gonna go. But here in the historical account of Yehoshua, something's gonna happen in those three days. In fact, three things are gonna happen in those three days, and I will give them to you all together, and then I'm gonna take them all out of order, okay? But the three things are separation, salvation, and sanctification. And I want you to keep that in mind tonight. Separation, salvation, and sanctification in that order is going to happen in these three days. But let's take them out of order. Let's start with sanctification. The last of the three. It's what Joshua is commanding his officers to tell the people. But if you skip over to chapter three, verse five, which we won't get to tonight, but chapter three, verse five, then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. So this is at the end of the three days. This is on the third day. Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do something, do wonders among you. Consecration and sanctification, same word, same word. Let me ask you a question. How do you prepare for something God is about to do? Now, you may immediately respond and go, well, how do I even know what he's about to do? Okay, how do you prepare for something you've asked the Lord to do? or something you are expecting him to do, or even something you're hopeful that he will do? How do you prepare for that? And the answer throughout the Bible is consecrate yourself. There's an, a, a, an immediate connection between sanctification and the signs and wonders and works of God. And sanctification is always called for first. Joshua says, sanctify yourselves. Sanctify yourselves. The Hebrew word is hitkadasu, which comes from kadosh. Kadosh means holy or holiness. Hitkadasu means make yourselves holy. Go through the camp, he tells his officers. And then in chapter three, he tells the people himself, tomorrow's a big day, make yourselves holy. Sanctification. And it's a divinely inspired pattern. God established, in fact, 40 years prior to this, there on Mount Sinai, the Mount of God, Exodus 19, verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them. Make them holy, hit katasu. Sanctify them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments. Let them be ready for the third day. Oh, there it is again. And on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So that was 40 years earlier. God established it. If you want to see the Lord come down, you need to be sanctified. You want my presence, you need to prepare with holiness. So now, before the people can experience the Jordan River crossing, they have to adopt an attitude of holiness. And this sanctification before, before wonders, sanctification before the miraculous, sanctification before the supernatural, this is an established pattern. It's intentional. And I believe so today, this is a charge to the believer's determination to embrace holiness. God's saying, I want you to, you know, he already said be strong and courageous, now he's saying be sanctified. You wanna see me work? You wanna see my supernatural power in this world today? You wanna see me active among you? Sanctify yourselves. 
This is a major factor in the works of God, in the promises and signs and wonders, and that is holiness. It's interesting to me, and there are some denominations who have picked up on this. They figured it out. You've heard of the church of God, which is impressive. I grew up in the church of Christ. Well, they're the church of God. And then, of course, there's like the first Reformed church. I always felt bad for the second Reformed church. They just didn't quite get there, you know, but we try harder. I don't know. All the names of the churches, but, but maybe you've heard this and you're aware of this in the church of God. Maybe you grew up in the church of God. What's interesting to me in the church of God, very Pentecostal in its nature, very much about signs and wonders and the, and the uh, overt acts of the Holy Spirit, and very into holiness and uprightness. The women not wearing pants, at least for a long time, it was long dresses and no jewelry and, and certain prescriptions that were an outward determination to embrace holiness because you're not gonna see the signs unless you're first sanctified. And that's very interesting to me. I think that's a real legitimate approach. At least to seeing God work is to sanctify yourself. Why would he come and work if we're sitting there all, you know, hanging out in our sin and proud of it or, or embracing it. You know what? It's that old attitude. I'm, it's just instinctual. I just, I gotta sin. It's what I shared with you on Sunday. It's that attitude that says, well, I sin and repent, you know, but I sin again, but I repent, but then I sin again, I repent. It's just kind of the pattern of my life. Stop, be strong and courageous. Knock it off, sanctify yourself or you will not see the, the Lord at work in your life. You wanna see God work? Be holy. It starts with sanctification. Matthew chapter 12, verse 39. You know what Jesus said about signs and wonders? Remember this? An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And no sign will be given it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days, oh, there it is again, and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus says, I'm gonna give you one sign, the resurrection, and that's it. We're not to be craving the sign, we're to be sanctified. Sanctify them, Jesus prayed on the night of his betrayal. Sanctify them in the truth, John 17, 17. Your word is truth. And so it's not signs to which we've been called, it's sanctification, and the signs will follow. And I'm convinced of that. And see God move, sanctify yourself first. Embrace holiness. And so the first thing, actually it's the third thing in our list chronologically, the third thing that Joshua really stresses is sanctification. Third thing in the three days, sanctification. Don't chase down signs and wonders. You pursue the Savior. You prepare for him. You seek to be pleasing to him. Signs and wonders will follow. And even at the last, you know what's very interesting? Sanctification will precede the second coming. Joel prophesied as much, Joel 2.15, blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber. And you know who the groom is and you know who the bride is. So that is a prophecy of the second coming of Jesus with his bride, with the church in glorious return. 
But for that to happen, Joel prophesies, sanctify yourselves and you will see the Savior. So sanctification, that's number three. Secondly, we're gonna do number one. And that's separation. Separation is the very first thing that we see take place, verse 12. To the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, who I like to call half-Manasseh, Joshua said, remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, the Lord your God gives you rest and will give you this land, this land. That is the land on the eastern side of the Jordan. He'll give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, your cattle shall remain in the land which Moses gave you beyond the Jordan, but you shall cross before your brothers in battle array all your valiant warriors and help them until the Lord gives your brothers rest. And indeed, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh would lead the charge. This was not just a promise that they would go help their brothers of Israel fight. You guys wanna stay over here? You fight first. You lead the battle. And we'll see that later in Joshua. So you're gonna cross over and you're gonna fight and help them until, verse 15, the Lord gives your brothers rest as he gives you and they also possess the land which the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to your own land, possess that which Moses the servant of the Lord gave beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise, that's on the east. Interesting, Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh did not want to cross this Jordan. Remember this book is filled with parallels, not to heaven, but to the Christian life filled with interesting parallels to the church itself and how we take hold of the promises. And Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh are a picture here. They didn't want to cross this Jordan, at least, at least not to settle. They were still Israel. They were still part of the people of God, still receivers somewhat of the promise because remember, God's promise was extending all the way to the river Euphrates. So even on the eastern shore, it's still the promise of God. They're still within the promise, but they didn't want to live in the central hub of the promised land. I was asked back when we were doing numbers, wait, wait a minute, if God's giving them the land all the way out to the Euphrates, what's the problem with the Reubenites, Gadites, and half-tribe of Manasseh staying on the eastern shore? What's the problem? God's original intent was that all 12 tribes be on the west side of the Jordan. Why? Defense security. He wanted them to be hubbed together on the western shore so that there's the river between them and any enemy, so that they're closer together, they can protect each other, fight for each other, and be truly in the heart of the land. And then the intention was, through David, through Solomon down the line, something that they didn't know yet, the intention was that the land would spread out and their security would go all the way out to the Euphrates, which it never did, but it will someday. So Moses and then Joshua, they said, fine, you can stay here on the eastern shores. That's what you want. You see the land. It's, it's good for your flocks and herds. That's all fine. But you still got to fight with us until Canaan is routed and your brothers have their inheritance. And then, if you want to, you can backtrack to the eastern shore. Verse 16, they answered Joshua saying, all that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. And to their credit, they did. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Did, did they? 
just as we obeyed Moses in all things, it's so funny how we forget. So we will obey you. If I was Joshua right there, I'd go, no, please don't obey me like you obeyed Moses. I don't want that kind of obedience. Only they say, may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Anyone who rebels against your command is not to obey your words and all that you command him shall be put to death. Only, and then they echo the word of God, be strong and courageous. But again, they didn't fully obey. They had determined for their part to stay on the wilderness side of the promised land. And it is a picture for us today that I think is sadly familiar. And I'll let you process this. In fact, it's gonna become even more significant on Sunday when we deal with chapter three and the Jordan River crossing. There are Christians today who prefer not to cross the Jordan. They're content to live on the eastern shore, to settle there. They, they, they'll fight alongside you. They will stand under the same banner and, and name of Yehoshua as you. They're justified. They're saved, just like you, just like me. But they're content to settle on the edge of the promise. In what seems to be an easier land don't bug me with that other side of the Jordan stuff. Just leave me be. I'm with you. I believe in Jesus. I trust in the promises of the Lord, but I have my little 10% over here and I'm happy with that. I don't need all the promise. I don't wanna get into all that other stuff. Promised land, not a picture of heaven. It is a picture of the Christian life. Not the kingdom, but the life of promise. And what I'm talking about in this, I don't mean to divide believers, but there are those who are content to just remain. There are also those who wanna press into the heart of the promise, who wanna get in as far into the promises of God as possible. Those for whom, and I'm just gonna make one little picture here, those for whom Sunday morning's just not enough. And that's a very superficial thing. You know, it's, easy, it's, it's an easy target. I, I've said this before. Targeting church attendance is as easy as targeting Oprah Winfrey when you're preaching. It's just easy to do. But, but it's, it's the idea of, do you have enough in, in your Christian life? Have you, are you living enough of the promises of God? There are some who would say, I'm good. You know, I'm good. I'm connected to a church fellowship. I'm there at least every other month. You know, I, but my life's busy. I got a lot going on. I got things to do. And, and so that's great. I, I know there are other people who are far, far deeper into the promises of God than I am, but I, you know, I got what I need. And so they're camping out on the Eastern shore. What did God command Joshua and the people? Cross this Jordan. Why? Because the promises are better here. What's on the Western shore? Jerusalem capital, the land, the heart, the support of your brothers and, and, and fellow tribes, the strength of, of being Israel together. And there are believers today who just aren't into experiencing any more than my day in, day out, and an occasional stop at the table. The Lord is gonna call you, but he will not coerce you. The Lord has a way of challenging and even convicting us, but you know what he doesn't do? He does not 
manipulate. He's not gonna try and play with you or, or undermine you. He's not gonna force you to take hold of anything that you'd really rather not take hold of. And in that way, he is a gentleman. As my sister Brandy said a little while ago, God's such a gentleman. He just isn't gonna force himself on you. The question for you, the question for me, is how far into the promise do you want to go? Listen to what Paul says, Philippians chapter three. Philippians chapter three, verse 11. And he's just come off of saying, I, I wanna know him and the power of his resurrection. This is verse 10, Philippians 3, and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Some people would listen to Paul say that back then and go, this guy's nuts. This guy's crazy. He wants not only to know Jesus and the resurrection, but he wants fellowship in the sufferings of Jesus. That's going a little too far. Paul says in verse 12, not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of, this is promised land thinking, folks, lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's someone who wants all the promise, who wants to traverse the entirety of the land, not someone who's content to sit on the eastern shore and feed his cows. And it's really an attitude, it's a heart that we're talking about here. And the challenge for you and for me, and, and I, I, I've told you before, I have a wife who challenges me to this all the time, Cheryl's famous phrase, what are we here for? When she starts to say that, I get real uncomfortable. Because I'll tell you what I'd like to be here for, I'd like to be here to put up my feet, eat my popcorners, chips, and junior mints with my slippers on and watch my show and go to bed. That's what I'm here for. That's Eastern Shore thinking. And God is inviting us into promise. Don't, don't separate yourself from, from the church, from your brothers and sisters fighting the fight. Don't settle for less than the full experience of the promised land today. We can have promised land living right now. Kingdom's coming New heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, beyond that is coming. It will all be experienced, but we don't have to like struggle through life now, sitting across on the other side of the Jordan. And by the way, if you're gonna fight the good fight anyway, don't settle for the East or the easy way of living. Fight the good fight. Cross this Jordan. And if you're gonna fight after, after crossing it, stick around. Don't backtrack. Reuben, Gad, half Manasseh, they followed through and fought, but then they backtracked east of the Jordan. Paul says in Ephesians chapter one, verse three, that he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. That is not a promise for the future because the very language Paul uses is God has blessed us with all those spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Right now, he's blessed us with this kind of promise. But if we take it like Reuben and Gad and half Manasseh, 
You know what? Those three tribes were the first to be destroyed by the Assyrians, along with Dan up in the north, and that's a different story. Those three tribes said, yeah, we're content on the eastern shore. And so when Assyria came in 722 BC and wiped out the 10 northern tribes of the kingdom of Israel, Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh were taken off first. It's easy to get picked off when you're living out on the fringe rather in the heart of the promise. Three days. Three days for three reasons. Separation, which we see the separation here of Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh. Sanctification, which we will see coming up on day three, ready for the next day. And then the one I really wanna focus on the rest of our time tonight. Second, salvation. Salvation. Three days in the Bible. It's always about preparation and invitation for salvation. The three days. Three days from the cross to the grave to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mark 9, 31, he was teaching his disciples and telling them the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. When he has been killed, he will rise three days later. Remember in John chapter two, he said at the very beginning of his ministry, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. Like it took 46 years to get to the temple to where it is right now and you're gonna rebuild it and all this stuff. No, he's talking about the temple of his body, John tells us. Or 1 Corinthians 15 verse three, Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That is Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and was buried days one and into two and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, three days Three days are preparation and invitation for salvation. We'll watch this. Verse one of chapter two. Then Yehoshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim. Shittim is a word in the Hebrew means the acacia trees. This is the place of the acacias. It's on the plains of Moab there. And he sent them from Shittim saying, go, three things, go, view the land, especially Jericho, this is not a mission like the previous spies 38 years prior. This is now a very precise military reconnaissance. Check out Jericho, because that's target number one. So they went and they came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahav and lodged there. Well, that's just great. They've gotten away from the camps of Israel, the two guys. Where should we go first? Well, I don't know. We're spying things out, but don't we have a little time for a little fun? And off they head to the house of a harlot. This is Bible. You know, I love the word of God because the word of God just tells us this is what they did. You might not like what they did. This is what they did. Now, I'm playing around with this. I think there's some really significant stuff here, and we're gonna see this in just a minute. But they went into the house of a harlot, a woman whose name, Rahav, even means broad. Which I'm sure she was called a few times. It's funny, Rahav the harlot. We say Rahab. Rahav in the Hebrew. Josephus and the Talmud and many of the old rabbis, it's really funny to read their commentaries because they tried really hard to write off this embarrassment that these two spies of Israel would go to a harlot's house and that the harlot actually would be part of the salvation of Israel. She can't be a harlot. That can't work. And so they call Rahav an innkeeper. 
sure if you're an innkeeper for a chicken ranch. I mean, I'm <laughs> trying to say here. Harlot is the word zona in Hebrew. And zona translates, it actually does translate innkeeper, but it's understood innkeeper in an unfavorable sense. You know what, <laughs> you know what kind of inn we're talking about here. So she is a zonah. If you want even further evidence, and, and, and in Hebrew, Jewish people know this, Hebrew does speak of a zonah. That's the word used for prostitute, for a harlot. In the New Testament, Rahav is listed three times. Two of the three times, she is called Rahav the harlot. And the Greek word for harlot, see if this sounds at all familiar to a word that we have, the Greek word for harlot is porne. Uh-huh, it simply means one who sells herself for sex. So there's no question about, at least about what Rahav was in her professional life. You know, I love Rahav and I love her story and I love how this plays out before us because what might embarrass us about ourselves, our past, or even other people is so easily erased by God's grace. You may look back and go, you know what I used to do was pretty bad. Embarrassing even. Or those things that are in my history, why was I so stupid? Why did I do that? Why did I choose those things? And it's erased by the grace of God, received by faith. Ephesians chapter two, verse eight, by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And Rahab, as you will see, is a woman of faith in the grace of God. A woman whose past will be erased by faith. Are you ashamed of anything tonight? Embarrassed? As Chris and I were talking about being ashamed of not speaking the name of Jesus in public, and, and he goes, and I just, I, I'm kinda, I'm ashamed, I, I feel guilty and, and, and shamed, and I went, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, the devil will shame you. God's not gonna shame you. He'll convict you, he'll challenge you to think through what, what he's calling you to, but he's not gonna shame you, that's a work of the enemy. Are you ashamed of anything in your past where even tonight, it still dogs you. I'll tell you what, when it dogs you, that's because the devil is trying to remind you of where you've been. And you Bible students, you know what you do when the devil reminds you of where you've been? Tell him where he's going. Remind him of his future. Are you embarrassed that your sin may find you out? Well, it will. Uh, if it's hidden, if it's unrepented, if it's tucked away, Bible is very clear, Numbers 32, 23, be sure your sin will find you out. It may not be today, it may not be tomorrow, but it will find you out. It will be exposed. That's what sin does. Sin is, is you know, it's the, we're lured into it, we commit it, and then it becomes our enemy. And it goes after us, and it wants to be found out. But Psalm 103, verse 12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Your sin wants to find you out, but by faith in his grace, you come to Jesus and he goes, removed. And someone can come up to you and say, I remember you, you used to be Rahab the harlot. No, 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 I'm a child of God. That sin is erased. 
that is not me. The defining characteristic of Rahav is not her harlotry, it's her faith. It's her faith. Well, how do you know? Just watch. But before I get there, understand that God does not want you, he he doesn't want to know you, he's not interested in knowing you by your sin. He doesn't want you to be, you know, Joe the alcoholic, Betty the adulterer, Sam the thief, John, well, that wouldn't work. I would say John the harlot. It would have to be like Jenny the harlot. But that's what humanity does. Humanity wants to call you based on your worst. Humanity wants you to be guilty and caught if you've done anything that's even the slightest bit out of line, unless it's what we're all doing anyway, and then it's okay, come do it with us. But it is not God to try and say, I'm gonna attach your sin to you and that's gonna be your name for all eternity. No. Jeremiah 31, 34 says, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. It's gone. But why did the two spies enter her house? We'll come back to Rahav. Why did the two spies do this at all? And we can guess and gossip and joke a little bit about that's the first place they went. There are a lot of really good reasons why the spies of Israel might have gone to the house of a harlot. For one thing, for two foreigners to enter a harlot's house would raise little suspicion. Happened all the time. These two guys from out of town went to a harlot. Oh, okay, well, maybe they're just traveling through, and and I'm sure it had happened before, and no one really thought much of it. And so this would be a good cover, but we don't know that. We We aren't given that in Scripture. I'll tell you what the most simple answer is to why they ended up in Rahav's house. She invited them. She invited them. Now, I, I'm, I'm still in the realm of surmise here. The Bible doesn't tell us. All it says is they went and came into the house of a harlot. They just ended up there. I think Rahav invited them based on what's about to happen. She obviously knows these are men of Israel. That's unquestionable as the story continues. She knows that they're Israelites. She knows they've come into Jericho. She sees them and she says, come in, come inside my house. And so they end up there at her home, and I think that's the most simple explanation for them being there. Why would she invite these two Israelite spies? Because Rahab wanted to be saved. She's looking for salvation, and this is her chance to be saved. These three days not only are about the separation of the brothers of Israel, not only are they about the sanctification of the people ready to cross, these three days at the heart are about the salvation of Rahab which is what I love about this story so much. Watch this, verse two. It was told the king of Jericho, saying, behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. So these two guys weren't as sneaky, perhaps, as they thought. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, Yes, uh, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But, verse six, she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the fords, And as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. 
she totally sends them on a wild goose chase. Sends them out of town, running toward the Jordan. Way to go, Rahav. She's not only a harlot, she's a liar. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, but, but, but she did it for a good cause. Oh, okay, so, so the end justifies the means? Is that okay? What do we do with this lie? Yeah, it saves and protects the spies of Israel, but it's still a lie. What do we do with this? We come back to it later in the study. First, let's deal with the two spies. So the two spies are there, and she hides them. They are unnamed, but I just want to mention this. By rabbinical tradition, I find it very interesting. The old rabbis think the two spies were Caleb, who was an original spy, remember the 12, and uh, Phineas. Phineas, who's going to be the high priest, he's the son of Eliezer the high priest. And Phineas is the one, do you recall this, in Moab, when the sons of Israel were sleeping with the daughters of the Moabites? Phineas was the one who jumped up, grabbed a spear, and speared a man and woman straight through in their tent. This is a uh, this is a, a strong-hearted, passionate guy for the Lord. Interesting. So Phineas and Caleb, perhaps, we don't know for sure, but perhaps, it's what the rabbis say, that it was the two of them, they were the ones. Whoever they were, we can assume that their intentions in the house of Rahav the harlot were respectable and honorable. We can assume this about the two spies. These two guys are an interesting prophetic parallel. And we're gonna be talking prophecy in Joshua, I think a week from Sunday. But they're an interesting parallel to two other men, two unnamed in the Bible. Revelation 11, verse three, I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. And so we have these two spies and, and, and what's the parallel here? Hey, they're on a missionary mission, or, or sorry, a military mission. I was gonna say a missionary militancy. Doesn't work. They were on a military mission, but like the two witnesses, they became witnesses to Rahav and her household. They're representatives of Israel and Yahweh God, and so they become in this situation like witnesses, and all of Rahav's household is gonna get saved, not just her. Her household as well, her family, her father, mother, brother, sisters, if she has any. They're all gonna get saved and protected because the two spies slash witnesses came into her house. Let me ask you this question from a Christian perspective. What if these emissaries of Israel had treated her the way other foreigners and citizens of Jericho had? Hey, <laughs> we're in a house of a prostitute. What if she invited them in and they got out their wallets and started counting out their money? Because, hey, no one else is around to see us. It's just this harlot of Jericho. We're gonna wipe out Jericho anyway, so there's not even gonna be any record that we were here. Of course, now the record is in the Bible for all time. What if they had acted on that sin impulse? Would Rahav have been saved? Transform that or translate that to yourself. We are not spies, but we are witnesses and we are sent to what can seem to be an irredeemable people in this world. This is why what we do with non-believers is so important, that we behave 
honorably Christ-like with, with the fruit of the Spirit when we're with the non-believer because it's the non-believer who needs to be saved. And if I'm out in the non-believing world acting like the non-believing world, what kind of witness have I become? And what hope then? And I think back over my life and, and not to wallowing in guilt, but you know what? I've known a lot of people who seemed irredeemable, who lived in a walled and hardened place. We've been talking about this. In fact, we were talking about this a bit on Sunday in the roundtables about the gender issues right now in our culture. And there is an entire community of people who if right now, if I'm just being honest, I look from the church and I look at this community of people, like-minded people, and they look like a walled, irredeemable city. And I think... How are we gonna get the gospel in? How are we gonna see people saved whose lives are so hardened by the very sin and as a non-believer, they don't even realize perhaps some of them that it is sin. Those who are acting on instinct, those who are acting on this is how I feel, this is how I was born, this is who I am. You realize what Satan's done with gender and all that? He's made it about identity so that now it's not just what a person wants to do, it's who they are. Now if you cross someone about a sin issue in their life, it's not sin, it's my identity. How dare you question who I am? And, and, and what this looks like is, well, the, the Bible puts it this way, Proverbs 18, 19, a brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city, and contentions are like the bars of a citadel, and, and, and I recognize what that means is if you offend someone, it's gonna be hard to get forgiveness to happen. But we have entire communities of people who are anti-Christian, anti-church, and they're offended that we would say that they're anything but normal or that their sin behavior is anything but okay. That is an offense to entire communities of people. And so they end up looking like Jericho with, by the way, the archeological finds of Jericho, the most recent ones, show us two walls. It was a double-walled city, up, up on a tell. So you had to go uphill and somehow get through two walls to get into the city. Impenetrable. And God says, I want you to go to Jericho. You guys are going to breach these. Actually, I'll breach the walls for you. Then you're just gonna go in and take the city. It's a great story coming up in chapter six. How do we do this? where we have entire walled communities of people who outwardly reject the church and Christianity, again, unless we give hearty approval to what they're doing. 2 Corinthians 4.4 has never been more vivid than it is today. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ. I know someone personally who was gone after on social media because they were simply associated with me and our fellowship. Someone who was getting nasty, I'm not even gonna say which social media platform, but nasty messages on social media because they happened to go to the bridge and be connected to me personally, not my wife. And I think about that, and I think, how do we scale these walls? How do we reach these people who are so hardened, as hardened as Jericho? Well, how did the spies get in? They were invited to the house of a harlot. What if they hadn't acted with honor? 
What if they refuse to go because she's a harlot? Now, there's a whole different conversation we could have. Well, I can't, I can't have any association with that people. He's a sinner. So are you. We gotta think through that one. They didn't go to engage in her line of work. They went to a woman who wanted to be saved from her line of work. She wanted out. I think there's evidence of that as well. And in spite of this double-walled, double-blind work of the devil, the way in to a lost world may surprise you, may surprise me, but Jesus did say, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. You're gonna be my witnesses. You're gonna get into the cities. You're gonna breach the walls. And what's remarkable about this story is the breach happened in the house of a harlot. If you ask me, who's the last person in Jericho, with perhaps the exception of the king, who's the last person in Jericho who you think is gonna receive spies from the Israelites? And I would say, a hooker. Why, why would I even think that she would want to be redeemed? But she does. She does. I said this on Sunday when we were talking about the gender stuff. There are people making choices, a lot of young people right now who don't even know what they're doing, who are making choices that should the Lord tarry another five or 10 years, they are going to be racked with pain. And the question is, where will we be then? Will we be there to receive them? with the healing and the redemption that comes through Jesus alone. People right now who are choosing lifestyles that are painful to them and they would love a way out, but they can't imagine that there is one. People whose very lives are on the wall itself, kind of like Rahav. People who are looking for salvation, they just don't know how to ask. Well, that's Rahav. Before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof, verse eight. And she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. This is information. This is good information for them to have going back that actually the Canaanites and the people of Jericho are scared of you. Verse 10, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og whom you utterly destroyed. We've heard, we know. And then she says, when we heard our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God. There's your faith. In heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore, she says, Please swear to me by the Lord. Note each time that she says the Lord, the word she's using is Yahweh. She's naming him as God, as her God, the Lord. Yahweh your God, he is God, she says. Now please swear to me by Yahweh, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth. Spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. The woman is asking for salvation. So the men said to her, our life for yours. If you do not tell this business of ours 
And it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Don't forget this. Who had the upper hand? Who here in this scenario bore the power to save? And the answer is the Israelite spies. Rahab is telling them, my life is in your hands. And it makes me think how beautiful, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns, Isaiah 52, verse seven. These two men are spies, but they are also emissaries of salvation. Now, I've really belabored this point a little bit tonight, and here's why. Brothers and sisters, be strong and courageous because somebody's salvation depends on it. Some non-believer is depending on you simply to trust the Lord for his promise and to live as a child of God. Someone's gonna come and ask to be saved. Verse 15, continuing, then she let them down by a rope through the window for her house was on the city wall so that she was living on the wall. And that was typical in the day. A lot of homes built right into the wall. There are homes in Jerusalem today built right into the wall of Jerusalem. Cool. She said to them, go to the hill country so that the pursuers will not happen upon you and hide yourselves there for three days until the pursuers return. Then afterward, you may go your way. The hill country, if you stand in, uh, in Jericho, is west. And you can look it up, look up pictures, look on a map, but if you stand in Jericho, the, there are hills, there are low-lying mountains, if you will. They're hills that kind of surround the western side of Jericho. She says, you run west. Why does she say that? Because she told the pursuers to go east. <laughs> You go the opposite way. You hide over there and wait three days there and then you should be good to go back to your people. Afterward, you may go on your way. Verse 17, the men said to her, we shall be free from this oath to you which we, you have made us swear unless when we come into the land, you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down and gather yourself into the house, your father and your mother and your brothers and your father's household it shall come about that anyone who goes out the doors of your house onto, into the street, his blood will be on his own head, and we shall be free. But anyone who's with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. So we want to mark off your house, and we'll let our brothers know when we come in to fight, don't touch the people in that house. So they're going to have a little sign here in the window. And uh, they say in verse 20, if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from the oath which you have made us swear. She said, according to your word, so be it. She sent them away. Oh, I gotta I got mention this. Verse 21, that sounds just like Mary talking to the angel Gabriel at the birth, or, or the, the foretelling of the birth of Jesus. Angel came and says, you're gonna, have, you're gonna have a son. He's gonna be Jesus. He's gonna be Messiah. And she's like, so be it. As you have said, let it be done to me accepting that. Well, so Rahab sounds the same way, which is interesting because she's gonna be right there in that same lineage. But she says, according to your words, so be it. She sent them away, they departed. She tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed, they came to the hill country and they remained there for three days until the pursuers returned. Now the pursuers had sought them all along the road but had not found them. The story of the salvation of Rahab is so fascinating. But before we finish, a couple of elements to consider here. First off, consider the scarlet cord. 
Brandy recently did a Bible study about the scarlet thread, that thread through the scriptures, that red thread that runs through the pages of the Bible, starting with the very first sacrifice, Genesis 3.21, when God sends Adam and Eve out of the garden, when they lost paradise, remember what he did? He clothed them with animal skins. How did he get the animal skins? He had to sacrifice the animals. So that's the first sacrifice we see in the Bible. The first shedding of blood is God shedding the blood of animals to cover his people. That's a picture of atonement right there. And then we see in Genesis 4.4, the offering of Abel's little lamb, the blood offering before the Lord of the firstlings of his flock, the best that he had. And then we see in Genesis 22, the near sacrifice of Isaac. Do you remember that? Such a beautiful story, and I, I gotta read this to you because it's interesting, the parallel, Genesis 22, where the Lord says to Abraham, verse two, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, go to the land of Moriah for, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, the, took two of his young men with him, and Isaac, his son, he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And verse four says, on the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. And the sacrifice of Isaac, or the offering of Isaac, which God stopped, but that picture of a father sacrificing a son on Mount Moriah where the cross would be erected 2,000 years later, it happened on the third day. It's, it's amazing. But this, this is the scarlet thread weaving its way through the Bible, the blood of the Passover lamb that we read about in Exodus 12 that spread on the doorposts and the lentils of the home. By the way, do you know how you knew what the home of a prostitute was back in ancient times? Today, you would call it the red light district, or I don't know what you'd call it. I hope you wouldn't call it anything. But the red light district, there's a story of the scarlet letter, you know, that red painted on, that picture of, of, of an adulteress, of a prostitute. Well, what they would do is, even in ancient times, we have archeological evidence of this, they would paint the windowsill red. Well, that's weird. So the Passover lamb was, they painted the, the, the doorpost and the lintel, and there's that picture. Boy, you paint across that and then down, you kind of have a picture of a cross on the, on the doorpost of the Passover lamb's blood. Rahab is now gonna hang a scarlet cord down and out her window, and if the base was painted red, you would have a scarlet cross that was the symbol that this was Rahab's house. This is a house not of prostitution, but of salvation. Then you have all the blood sacrifices of Israel, Leviticus 1 through 5, Leviticus 17, 11, the life of the flesh is in the blood. I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. It is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. And so all through the Hebrew scriptures, God is painting this scarlet red cord, this blood red cord, all the way down to Jesus and the cross. So when his blood is shed, we get it. And so even here in the salvation of Rahab, we see the scarlet cord, the red, blood red cord. The second thing to note, though, that's interesting is the shielding flax. You've got the scarlet cord, you've got the shielding flax. This is interesting because flax is rarely even mentioned in the Bible. This is one of the very few times where you even see the word flax used. 
and, and it's tied to Rahab, and it's an interesting element. First of all, the stalks of flax, they can run two to three feet in length, so they easily, if you got these two to three foot stalks, you could easily cover the two spies. Lie down and just lay the stalks of flax over the two spies, so if the pursuers came into the house and went up on the roof and looked around, they would just see the flax laid out, and they wouldn't see them. Interesting that flax is also woven together to make a garment material that you are very familiar with. Flax is used for linen. A linen garment was of woven flax. The priestly garment that the priest wore closest to his skin. The ephod of the high priest, that was of woven linen, which is made again of flax. Not to mention that the, the simple robe underneath was woven of flax, that linen robe that he wore, and that's all he wore when he went in on Yom Kippur once a year to atone for the people. And it's woven of flax. When you go as a witness into this world, don't forget that you are covered by flax. Just like these two spies, you're covered. You're covered by the flax. What do you mean, Rick? Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready and it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. Why? Because the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So by deciding, by choosing to follow God, to be strong and courageous, to, uh, to live by his will, to live sanctified, I'm covered, I'm covered by the blood of Jesus, but I'm also covered in the righteous acts of the saints which God has given to me, has given to you, that we would live that way. Those righteous acts are clearly explained elsewhere. Romans chapter three, verse 21. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been seen being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. So we're covered by the flax. The righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. The flax, the shielding, the covering flax. Rahav now was a true woman of faith. Now you gotta listen carefully because I don't wanna take any flax for this. Thank you. What was a harlot doing with stalks of flax on her roof? What's that all about? It's interesting. Maybe, maybe having heard and believed in Yahweh, she was already weaving her way out of her lifestyle. She was already choosing a different profession, trying to find a way out of prostitution and into the weaving of linen garments. There is no other explanation for why a harlot would have, and note even how it says that she had brought them up, verse six, to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on her roof. These are laid out. There's order to this. There's organization here. Why is she organizing the flax on her roof? She's making linen garments. Now, we don't know why or exactly what's going on here, but it's interesting to me that she may already be thinking her way out. The Bible says in Proverbs 31.10, an excellent or a virtuous wife, who can find? I like to just say that and let it hang for a while. Who can find? Her worth is far above jewels, but then it says, Proverbs 31, 13, she looks for wool and flax and works with her hands in delight. So there's something here about 
this harlot and all this flax that she now has stored up, laid out in order that perhaps she is trying to find a way out. You know what happens? Faith changes behavior. Faith changes behavior. Rahab has faith in God and it's altering her behavior. It's altering what she does. And if faith doesn't change behavior, you don't have faith. James tells us that simply. You see, a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. James 2.25, he says, in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Wasn't that the evidence of her faith? So James writes, Jacob writes, faith without works is dead. It's not legit. Verse 11 Again, Rahab says, when we heard our hearts melted, no courage remained in any man any longer because of you, for the Lord, for Yahweh your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. She knows the name of Yahweh. She has accepted, she's become convinced in her own heart that Yahweh is God. He's the one true God. She is a woman of faith. More remarkably, Rahab makes the list of the great hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And that's a really cool list because there's some people on it that you'd go, are you kidding me? Rahab the harlot, you want to call her out? Hebrews eleven thirty one. by faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. So she's called Rahab the harlot in the hall of faith. Why? To remind us of what she had been but was a woman through whom faith had changed her, or, or by whom faith had, it had changed who she was. Faith changes behavior. In fact, faith changes everything. Now, let's tie this all up. She still lied. We can't get pie that one. You can't sweep that under the flax or under the carpet. It's just a matter of flax. In fact, but two things... To note, I'm just trying to keep you here. Some will say, yeah, but she did it for a good cause. She did it to cover the spies and save their hides. And Proverbs 10, 12 does say, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Love, so, so what? So if I love someone, I'm gonna hide their sin no, but if you love someone, you're not gonna expose their sin to anybody else but them. Our role as followers of Jesus in this world is not to go out pointing out people's sin. It is to point them to the Savior. Now you can talk to an individual as they begin to confess and share their sin, and you can talk there, but, but it's not ours to then go out to other people and tell them about what so-and-so did and how they behaved. And Now love covers all transgressions, Proverbs 10, 12. Peter picks up on that in the New Testament, 1 Peter 4, 8, and says, above all, keep fervent in your agape, in your unconditional love for one another, because unconditional love covers a multitude of sin. Remember that 1 Corinthians 13 says, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Love says, I'm not interested in telling the world about your sin. I'm interested in seeing your sin washed away and forgotten. So again, it doesn't sweep sin under the carpet or hide it, but it does seek to cover rather than to shame. That, that's what the love of God 
decidedly did through the sacrifice of Jesus. But here's the bigger issue with Rahav and her lying. We cannot dismiss it as, but it was for a good cause, because again, that is the end justifies the means, and that's not biblical. Lying is never okay. God doesn't use sin to further his purpose. Yeah, but she did. I know she did. But here's the bigger issue. It is never how a person begins his or her faith life that counts. It's how they end their faith life. It's never how you started out. It's how we are when Jesus calls us. How did you start out? How long did it take you to start recognizing the sin that was in your life? Some things that maybe you never before thought of as sin that now you would go, oh, I would never do that now. But before I knew Jesus, it just wasn't an issue. It wasn't a problem. A lie is a lie. And, and get this, this is so significant. This is huge. A lie is never justified. But Rahav is justified. What do you mean? We in, in, in our flesh, we want to justify behavior. God's saying, I'm not justifying your behavior. I'm going to justify you. I'm gonna justify you. As a justified man, a follower of Jesus Christ, redeemed and saved, I have been justified. If I'm gonna count all my behaviors, I'm in some trouble. But Jesus doesn't seek to justify my behavior. He justifies me. And that is radical thinking. My behavior still has some work to do. You know what, though? I think I can say this honestly less now than 40 years ago. <laughs> you might say, I hope so, Rick. But isn't that how it works? I gave my life to Jesus. I was 10 years old. I didn't even know what some sins were yet that I would commit after giving my life to Jesus. But I was justified. And then I learned what a lot of us learn, and that is to try to justify my sins or justify my, my behavior before God, and that's never gonna work. You are justified. Your life is justified. Morality, integrity, the fruit of the Spirit, guess what? These are qualities that the Lord works in you to sanctify you after you've been saved, which is why salvation is before sanctification in this list. You're being sanctified. These qualities are nurtured through seasons of time. And again, how straight was your walk at the first? What we see in Rahav is a woman who acts by her faith. She is saved for her faith, but she's not saved for her behavior. She's not saved because, hey, she pulled off a good one. She's saved because she believes in Yahweh. And she has to learn, and I believe would eventually learn over time, that the lie thing probably wasn't the best way to do it, Rahav. But you trusted God, and for that, you're justified. I love that the Old Testament always shows people as they are, right? The New Testament tends to show people as they are in faith. So in the Old Testament, we have Abraham who lies, who sleeps with Hagar, but in the New Testament, Abraham is a friend of God and father of faith. In the Older Testament, Lot lived in Sin City, Sodom, right? Got drunk and fathered 
two sons, Moab and Ammon, the Moabites and the Ammonites, by his two daughters. I mean, it's sick. But in the New Testament, Lot is called a righteous man. That righteous Lot. Okay, why? Because I'm justified. Not my behavior, but my person. And God seeks to justify you. He'll change your behavior. Please don't get me wrong. It's not like I'm justified so I can do anything I want. That's not what I'm saying. He'll change your behavior over time as you mature in faith and as that whole moral system and the fruit of the Spirit begins to grow in you and be produced in you, that behavior's gonna change. In the meantime, you've already been justified. And that's just awesome. In the Old Testament, Rahav was a known harlot who lied. In the New Testament, she is a woman of both faith and honor. And when when James, when Jacob mentions her, when the Hebrew writer mentions her, both times they say Rahab the harlot, but you know what? In the most significant place she's mentioned in the New Testament, she is just Rahab. Just Rahab. And she not only believed, she was assimilated right into Israel. Joshua chapter six, verse 25 says, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all she had, Joshua spared and she lived in the midst of Israel to this day, and she hid the, for she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. She became an Israelite. This Canaanite woman of Jericho, this harlot became an Israelite and ultimately, ultimately married into Judah and wonderfully landed in the greatest lineage of all history. You all know this. Matthew 1, verses five and six. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahav. So clearly she married someone from the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> Salmon, by the way, just, just because it's curious to me, Salmon's name means garment. Interesting. Rahav, this new weaver of flax, marries a guy whose name is Garment. I don't know if that attracted her when she first heard of Salmon or I don't know. Salmon was father of Boaz by Rahav. Boaz was father of Obed by Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. And Matthew traces that lineage all the way down from David ultimately to where he says, Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born. Not Joseph, but Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Rahav was David's great, great, great savta, or grandma. Four questionable women are all mentioned in the lineage of Jesus. I think that's wonderful. Four questionable women. Tamar is in that lineage who prostituted herself with Judah, no less, to produce an heir because she wasn't getting set up with the husband after her husband died. It's a sordid tale. And yet Tamar is not listed as Tamar who prostituted herself. She's just Tamar in the lineage of Jesus. Rahav, not Rahav the harlot, just Rahav now wife of Salmon, Ruth, the Moabitess outsider who should never have even been a part of Israel but was brought in as she married Boaz and ultimately <laughs> Bathsheba, the adulteress. But she's not called the adulteress. She's in the lineage of Jesus. And I end with that to say this, for anyone with a sinful background, and that's everyone, shame ends where the salvation of Yahweh begins. We are justified 
by Yahoshua, the salvation of Yahweh. Our behavior will be changed, but my person, it is just as if I had never sinned at all. The justification of Jesus. Romans 9.33 says, As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be ashamed. Verse 23, Then the two men returned and came down from the hill country, crossed over and came to Joshua the son of Nun, and they related to him all that had happened to them. They said to Jehoshua, Surely the Lord has given all the land into our hands. Moreover, all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before us. They got the information that they needed. And these two men, be it Caleb and, and Phineas or, or two others, we don't know, but these two men are a far cry from the spies 38 years earlier. Strength, courage, and faith, they're emerging now right before victory. But I repeat what I know Jake preached a couple of weeks ago, 1 John 5, verse 4, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Amen. <laughs> 